that was the first aha moment thousands of people all across the world needed a solution which was mobile which was interactive which was affordable and which is on the go that was the moment where we realized that oh wait this is bigger than the project this is bigger than what we had initially thought of this is real the demand is much bigger the opportunity is much bigger and this can turn into something much bigger than what we expected hello and welcome to the polsky center's where are they now podcast i'm colin keely and we catch up with founders from chicago boost new venture challenge on this show join us as we dive into their entrepreneurial journeys get a look at the stories and struggles behind their success this week we have ashish ragnikar interviewed by michael alter Ashish is the CEO and co-founder of BenchPrep, a SaaS learning platform for education and training companies to create and deliver personalized digital learning programs across multiple devices. They've helped millions of people all around the world learn better and faster by leveraging the power of technology. Michael Alter is a professor of entrepreneurship at Chicago Booth. Previously, he is the CEO of the Thai Bar and co-founder and CEO of Sure Payroll. Without further ado, here's Ashish Ragnikar and Michael Alter. Ashish, first of all, thanks for taking the time. I'm really excited about the opportunity to get to know you a little bit better, to hear the story. I've heard um, bits of it over time, and it's just a, a phenomenal success. And I know the story is still being written, and I'm excited to sort of hear where you're going as well. Um, I'd love to start really kind of early on, if you will. There's always been a question in my mind, are, are entrepreneurs sort of born entrepreneurs, or are they you know, do they, do they, can you teach them? Do they build it? You know, how do you, how do you become an entrepreneur? And so I'm just curious, tell me a little bit about yourself. Like, where'd you grow up? What did your parents do? Like, how did that come about? Absolutely. Um, and Michael, first of all, I am really excited to be talking to you about all this. Um, so I'm, I'm looking forward to the next hour. So going back all the way, um, I grew up in India in a town called Indore. It's, a, I would say, a mid-tier town as per Indian standards, um, pretty sizable in population, roughly 2 million. Um, it's, a, it's a sleepy town. It's actually known for its food more than anything else. Okay. It's something good to be known for. Oh, absolutely. I, I, I miss that food. I grew up in a, and I would say like a, a middle-class home. Um, my mom was a teacher. My dad was a retail banker. Both of them retired kind of a few years ago. And um, entrepreneurship wasn't really kind of, you know, discussed in our house. I think, you know, my entire family and the next few generations were focused more on just kind of, you know, I would say like white collar jobs, but no kind of history of entrepreneurship. Got it. And do you have brothers and sisters? I have a younger sister, two years younger. She's an artist. Okay. Uh, so we took like very, very different paths. Um, it's it's interesting. Got it. So how did you end up here in the U.S.? And what was your first kind of couple of jobs? Because I don't, I don't think they were very entrepreneurial either. No, not at all. Now I can actually connect the dots and see how I ended up doing what I'm doing, not just from an entre- being an entrepreneur perspective, but also the, the specific problem that I'm trying to solve. And um if I go all the way back, I actually remember that when I was in um, 11th grade, my goal was to join um, this prestigious engineering college in India, the the IIT, like six of them, right? And back in that time, this is like 1996, by the way, this is pre-internet, at least in India. 
there weren't any resources available to me to prepare for the exam that gets you in those colleges. There were maybe books available, but in the town that I was in, there weren't any, you know, tutors or any extracurricular help that I can actually get to prepare for that exam. So I took a decision to actually move to a different town and live alone for a year so that I can prepare for this exam. And it just seems ridiculous. First of all, it seems ridiculous now that there weren't those resources available. But I also feel very grateful that my mom and dad were totally okay with it. I mean, I was like 17 years old, 16 years old at that time. Did you go to a private school while you were preparing somewhere else? Or how did you, what did you do for that? Was it just preparing full time for the year? Yeah. So this is after I had graduated from high school, I took one year off. So it was a drop year so that I can actually prepare for this exam. So I moved, I lived alone. I lived, I rented out a house with like a couple of friends. I kind of went to this kind of, you know, tutoring center for a year took the exam and finally made it. And that experience not only kind of shaped up how I made decisions for the rest of the life, but going to IIT and I went to Indian Institute of Technology, Mumbai, going to IIT and those four years completely transformed my life. Tell me a little bit more about it because the two things you said were fascinating. One was that that decision sort of shaped your your life and that approach going forward. I'd love to hear more about that as well as um, how... Um, IIT changed you. Yeah. So I think, I think that that was the, f- and this is all like, you know, hindsight. Now I can um, analyze it. Right. I look back at it and I realized that that was a, f- that was a first strong instance or true instance where I refused to just accept what was given to me. What I was trying to do, which was, uh, you know, trying to go to IIT or even like stepping out of my little comfort zone in Indore and living in another town was unheard of in our family. So I was okay being uncomfortable. And luckily, I had the support of my family to do that. But then that kind of almost became a norm, where it's like, oh, so, you know, oh, I can do this and I can be okay and thrive in this discomfort a little bit. So let me push a little bit more, push a little bit more. And that kind of became an ongoing kind of trend, which led me to eventually kind of start this business and, you know, be, you know, somewhat successful in it. So I, I look back at that decision and I think that shaped a lot of, uh, of what, how I kind of made decisions going forward. Yeah. It's interesting. I don't know who said it. Someone said, but I love the quote, something to the effect of you learn best at the edge of your comfort zone. Yeah. 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 It sounds like that's really sort of where you positioned yourself and that's what forced you into learning. Yeah. I, on that uh, note, Michael, I remember I was traveling and I think I was in Florence and this is like maybe even like 12, 12 years ago, I was in Florence, Italy, living in a hostel. And there was a quote written there, which I still remember very distinctively. It said, if you're not living on the edge, then you're taking too much space. <laughs> yep. And you've managed to move forward that. So so, so walk me through how did your experience at IIT, it's IIT, right, influence you and change you? Yeah. So there are a couple of like really important things that happened at IIT. Um, one was that I think that truly opened up my horizon. Right? I was, you know, I was in this like small mid-sized town in Indore and now suddenly I was in Mumbai 
interacting with people who came from all across the nation. So just that network and me being able to observe and learn from all these other students was just incredible to me. It, it was one of those things where like, now I did well in, in high school. I mean, I was not the topper, but I was always like you know, a good student. And now I suddenly come here and see like, oh my God, these are like the best students from all across India. And I think that exposure um, just dramatically changed the way I thought about what, you know, what is possible, what success means and what you can really do. So that, that was one thing. Second is um, I met my co-founder there. So I met Ujwal, who eventually became my co-founder. He was my roommate. And then we kind of stayed friends um, and then eventually started the, the, the company together. And I mean, again, that, that was life-changing. So how many years ago did you guys meet then that you, before you started the business? So we met in 1998, which was uh, what, 23, 22 years ago. And then we started working on this, I call a project, which became a company in 2008. So we had known each other for a good, like 10 years um, before we uh, started this. And just randomly you ended up as roommates. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, it's, it's uh, now that we are on it, I would say we were actually not even roommates. So we were allotted um, rooms next to each other. And um, we convinced our roommates um, in the middle of the semester to change the room assignment so that we could be roommates. And then the rest is history. Excellent. All right. And so at IIT, is that, is that four years, a four-year institution? Is that how, how it Four works? years, yeah. So I got my bachelor's in mechanical engineering there. Okay. And then what? So then I came to US. I, I realized that mechanical engineering was really not where I wanted to kind of spend my time. Um, mathematics was something that interested me a lot. So I came to US to do my master's in applied mathematics. And I was in New York City, University of New York. And actually as part of that program, they offered me an adjunct role to teach, um, let's say like pre-calculus to undergraduate students. So I was in New York, graduate student, 22 years old, um, taking my graduate level classes in the evening and um, being an adjunct um, teaching almost kids of my age um, during the daytime. Got it. What was that like? I mean, because I suspect the difference between the age of your age and the age of the students you're teaching is, is not dramatically different. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was frightening at multiple levels. I mean, first, it was like I had never been outside of U.S. So this is like the first time I'm stepping outside of the country. I am overwhelmed overall in just my like the, the, the cultural differences were big enough that I was overwhelmed. I was overwhelmed with this whole kind of, you know, me being a graduate student applied, you know, master's of applied mathematics program. And then on top of it, actually teaching. So it was definitely overwhelming. I would say, though, that it was definitely one of the most rewarding experiences of my life. And was which part, the, the teaching or everything together? At that time? The teaching part, the teaching part specifically. I think, um, so first, that was the first time I was in the shoes of an educator. It was a very humbling experience because I was actually on one side during the evening as a student. And then the next morning, I have to actually teach to the students. I think that was a time when I truly understood what it means to engage a student, to 
truly kind of connect with them and empathize with them and you know being able to really teach and educate from their perspective not just from perspective of an educator and then eventually the things that i learned during those i would say 18 months um, in the classroom became the true product design principles when we started bench prep wow and so i guess had you not had that experience you, you might have had a few more iterations to figure it out definitely at the minimum i would also say that i think i would not have um, i wouldn't say i would not have but i think th that experience kind of just highlighted um how fulfilled i felt being in the education space in general right so my my mother is a teacher and she all i always looked at her and she always always felt very fulfilled in that field and then i went through that experience and i felt it but i that also highlighted the, the gaps in the system and at that time i was not ready to actually kind of jump in to become an entrepreneur or start a company but the, that experience always remained with me which then kind of you know came back 5 years later and pushed me over the edge and said like now i'm ready to kind of start a company surprised that you any interest in becoming a teacher full time or when you're getting a graduate degree you could go into academia and and do this full time if you were so you know passionate about it yeah i mean i think um, it did cross my mind because i really kind of enjoyed it honestly i think there were like couple of considerations um i think one was um just like you know visa issues and visa considerations i think um, i was compelled to actually kind of take on a job and second was uh, the concept of driving impact at scale always um, fascinated me and um, i mean i i taught um, maybe like you know six sections during those three semesters and it it all the thing that always kept coming back to me is like all the stuff that i did to to help these 150 kids how can i do it like 150000 students and actually later on a lot of decisions that we made in terms of picking the right business model and stuff um, were driven by that like how do we drive impact at scale got it and so how did you end up sort of going from there into the you know i think it's sort of the for profit world or did you go on for more education or, or what happened right you're, you're you're teaching you're you're at the edge again right it sounds yeah, like yeah. you here you you change cultures you you add graduate education and you got to teach these students you've never taught before yeah so i think that that was definitely fulfilling i think um after i graduated i um the program that i was in led me to a path um of becoming maybe like a quantitative trader at um on wall street i think it's a great career i think that, that's not something that i really kind of wanted to do so i started at capital one i worked in their corporate strategy team for 5 years and this is kind of the internal strategy consulting team and um, that was actually fascinating even that time i wasn't really looking to start a company or become an entrepreneur right? i was really happy just learning what i was learning and capital one at that time was i mean even today but that time especially was um, this like maverick of a company very data driven kind of decision making very meritocratic gave a lot of um, freedom to me as a you know 24 year old analyst and i really kind of got to see the inner workings of you know how a company should be built and scaled 
I was kind of, you know, working on projects that involved the CEO and the senior executive. So I got a sense of like how to think about long-term strategy. So I had a great time there for five years. Um, and it was when I was thinking of going back to school and started preparing for my GMAT exam is when this whole notion of like, oh, things are broken in this kind of, you know, the education world and I need to kind of do something about it came along. So let me stop you there because I, I do want to obviously come to the business, but I'm just curious. It seems like you're clipping along, you're enjoying it. There's all these opportunities, pretty high level opportunities at Capital One. And you decided you were going to go back and get your MBA. That'd be kind of a third degree for you. I mean, what drove you to say, hey, I want to get an MBA? So, um, I think there were a couple of things that I realized at at Capital One, which um, nudged me to consider an MBA. I think first was, I started to realize that um, my entire kind of business perspective was um, kind of singularly driven by how Capital One thought about it, right? And everything about financial services. And after five years, I had like switched kind of few roles and had worked with like different business units and got to a point where I felt I truly wanted a much broader, you know, business slash leadership perspective. And the options was like, hey, maybe I can kind of switch to another job in a different sector, or I can go back to business school. And it was not even in my mind, it was like, hey, I, I want a much broader perspective. And going to business school was definitely the best way to kind of achieve that. Got it. But it was a it was sort of a full stop move, right? Because you're gonna go full time to business school versus stay at Capital One and go in the evening. Yeah, it was full-time, right? And I think that the, the second reason that drove the full-time nature of it. So going back to what I took out of my undergraduate experience in IIT Bombay, one of the biggest thing was the network. I mean, I met my co-founder there, but not just co-founder, the, the broader network. And in US, I felt I didn't have that strong of a network. And hence the, the second and equally important thing that need that pushed me to consider an, a full-time MBA program was to build the network. And that's why uh, I was convinced that I think, uh, at least for me, the full-time was the, the way to go. Got it. So, so now you decide you're going to do it and you start to do it. And this is sort of, I think, the genesis of the business. I mean, how did you hit sort of strike gold there? What, what happened? Yeah. So even at that time, actually, let me, let, yeah, let's take a step back. So so I'm at Capital One and the first step of going to business school is taking your GMAT exam. And I was like, sure, you know, I'll, I'll prepare for my GMAT exam. No big deal. And when I started that, I realized that there were like a couple of options available to me. And this is what, 2007. So either I can buy a $20 book, you know, a cheap, accessible, but I have to lug it around and it's really not smart. It's not telling me what to do and so on. Or I can actually go and take a Kaplan classroom program, personalized to me, very interactive, but expensive, $2,000. And more importantly, they expected me to walk into the classroom every Tuesday at four o'clock. And I just couldn't do that. You know, I was traveling and it was kind of a consulting gig and, and so on. And I was actually amazed that how some of the things that I thought would be solved by now, you know, coming from my adjunct time, were still there. I mean, the technology hadn't really kind of caught up. There weren't really kind of good technology solutions. And at the same time, in 2007, Apple had released iPhone. 
And by 2008, they had released um, the App Store. So I could see all these apps floating around. And Michael, if you remember, there was an app where you could actually kind of drink beer and the level would kind of go down. And an app where you could actually kind of make all kinds of like crazy noises and sounds and, and so on. And don't forget the lighter app too, where you could you there have you go. Yeah. the big lighter showing, yeah. And everyone was so engaged with this modality. And I looked at this and I was like, this is crazy. People are spending so much time building and using apps, which are sure entertaining, but really not like life-changing. And here I am that I could have totally used um, a GMAT prep app on, on iPhone. And that stuck me. I mean, I, I actually kind of quickly went back to my like, oh my God, in 1997, I did not have good learning options. And then in 2002, when I was a, a, as an adjunct, I felt like, oh, there is so much you can do. And in 2008, again, I'm kind of dealing with this. And all this accumulated to a point where I said, we got to do something about it. And that's where this kind of journey started. Got it. So how did, how did you start the journey? How did you get started? You got this idea, right? A lot of people have ideas. What'd you do? So I started talking to Ujwa and, um, you know, to clarify the situation. So I, by this time, I knew that I'm going to business school. So I was working at Capital One, going, transitioning to business school. And did you have anything else going on? Like, or were you full-time? That was, that was everything, right? Or did you have a family at that point or, you know, what was, what was your, your, your world like? No, I was, I was living in New York city. I was, I had a girlfriend, um, not married. And then Ujwal, so there was nothing else going on. Um, Ujwal was, uh, finishing up his PhD, um, at Penn state. Okay. What was he getting his PhD in? In nanochemistry. So not that related to GMAT prep. Not at all. Not at all. However, he had a similar experience. So as part of being a, a doctorate student, he was teaching classes, right? And he enjoyed it a lot, um, similar to the way I enjoyed the my adjunct position. And he also felt that there are kind of, you know, a bunch of gaps that a good technology solution can, can solve. So he was in that mindset, not related to GMAT prep at all. So we got together and we said like, listen, you know, you know here is an opportunity. This is something that we feel strongly about. Uh, both of us have, you know, taken too many standardized exams between us. We have too many degrees between us. You know, we are seeing this amazing engagement driven by this um, this device, iPhone. So we should do something about it. And we said, let's build an app for GMAT Prep. Got it. And was what was your vision at that point in times of terms of where you did you know you wanted to build this huge business that would you know serve at scale so many people or was this just, hey, let's see if we can get an app up because I can use it so I don't have to lug this book around? Yeah. Honestly, I did not have a grand vision. We were not thinking about this as a business that would employ hundreds of people or a, a product that would touch millions of, of learners, not at all. We thought about this as like, hey, this is something that we feel strongly about. We know that people around us would really want to use it. And um, maybe this would give us ideas around what we would want to do next. Got it. But had you had any thoughts about being entrepreneurs at this point? So both Ujwal and I had did our own kind of little bit of like entrepreneurship projects, I would say, um, while we were in undergrad, right? Separately. 
So we had a taste of it. We knew that eventually we want to do it, um, but we never, never really kind of, you know, actively talked about it until this point came in. And as soon as we started talking about it, I think then a lot of ideas kind of came through and we, we started to look at like this as a stepping stone into something bigger. But it, was, it, it wasn't like, you know, hey, we, we want to be entrepreneurs, so let's do something. It was more like, you know, hey, this is actually something that we want to do. Let's see if this leads us to something bigger. And did you know it was something that would sort of have you step off eventually and do full time? Or this was, again, just, I'm still going to business school. This is just something we're going to do in the interim. Or how did you think about Definitely, it? Definitely, this was something that, hey, let's let's do something in the interim and then see what happens. I mean, we we really looked at this more of a more as a project. I looked at this as, hey, this will actually be cool to do before business school so that I can actually learn from it and then, you know, almost mold my two years at business school accordingly than something that I thought I would end up doing for, you know, 10 years. Got it. You can always write your application about the experience too, right? Actually, yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> That, that actually definitely came in handy. Um, and I think by the time I was writing application, um, the project was well underway. We had revenue and customers. So it was much more real than what I had initially expected. Got it. So what time frame is this sort of when you and your co-founder are deciding, hey, we got to go do something about this? This is 2000... This is 2008. 2008. Okay. And you ended up I assume you started in business school in the fall of 09. Is that yes. Right? yes. All right. So there's a little bit of time there from that. How'd you guys get it started? How'd you get the first app built? Like, how'd you manage to release something? Yeah. So I think th- th- this is the part that I'm actually incredibly proud of. So this is second half of 2007. Apple had released the iPhone platform, but the whole concept of building apps is a very new thing. There weren't too many apps. There weren't too many people who could build the app. I had some coding experience from undergrad. I actually had started my little kind of consulting business um, when I was in undergrad. And Ujwal also came from technical field. But we weren't developers. And we didn't really have experience developing mobile apps, let alone on iPhone. But we had a vision. We knew exactly what the app would look like. We knew exactly what it should do and so on. So... We first tried to kind of look for iPhone developers and there weren't any. Then we said, oh, maybe we should just kind of, you know, learn ourselves and try to build it. And that was a consideration. But then Ujwal actually knew of this undergraduate student in his um, chemistry lab at Penn State. He was a computer science student, very sharp, very eager to learn. So we went to him and said, "Um, hey, we want to do this. And would you be open to kind of learning how to build an app and build it for us. And we said, you know, we'll, we'll buy you an, uh, a MacBook. And, um, you know, if you could do it for us, then keep the MacBook and we'll pay you. If you can't, then it's fine. Keep, you can keep the MacBook as well. So we kind of took a little bit of, you know, leap of faith. And um, we gave him like a month to learn. And in the interim, we were trying to kind of figure out what else to do in terms of like how... Uh, the, the product design aspect of it, what should go in there, what should, what should be the functionality, what should be the UX and so on. This guy comes back in like two weeks and goes like, I'm ready, let's build it. I'm like, sure, let's do that. So I created content, Ujwal worked on the feature functionality and UX. This friend of ours, his name was Roman. He actually um, you know, built the app 
And within two months, we released the app on App Store. And this was the first test prep app on iPhone ever. Wow. And, and you guys, had you spent a lot of time out talking to people that were in the market for, you know, they're going to buy the book or take the Kaplan thing to understand? Did you spend a lot of time sizing the market or did you think about your go-to-market strategy or did you guys just, let's build this app and go? So we, we did. I mean, we, um, so I was the ideal customer and I knew a lot of people like me. So that, that was kind of the initial customer research. Um, so it was my friends, my coworkers, people who they knew um, and who had taken GMAT or who were about to take GMAT, that was my network. So you had the domain expertise here. Yes. So we did, I would say we did market research. We didn't do market sizing. We did market sizing from perspective of, hey, we are putting in $10,000. Are we going to get that back? Or not? <laughs> uh, not like, is this going to become a, a multi-million dollar company or not? Yep. So you weren't thinking about raising money or anything at this point in time. It's just, let's get something out. Let's help some people. Let's see if we can make some money at this. Yeah. I mean, it was truly like, let's let's put this out. We're going to learn about product design. We're going to learn, learn about marketing. We're going to learn about like how to create a business so that I can actually go to business school and, you know, mold my curriculum around it and do something bigger. Got it. Little did we know that this would become that, that big thing. Uh, and it's amazing how it worked out. Got it. So this was almost the practice. Yes, that was what this it was. was the practice to be. business. Yeah. And I, I remember we launched this app in December of 2008. And we said, you know, well, maybe like, you know, 20, 30 people would kind of, you know, buy it. At that you time, charging for it? So, yeah, pricing was a big thing, right? So, most of the apps at that time were 99 cents or free. Right? Or some of the apps were like, I don't know if you remember, they were like, hundred dollar apps and thousand dollar apps, right? So there was no like good pricing models on the app store, but we were convinced that this is a kind of a high stakes exam. This is a serious product. And we had put in a lot of good design thinking behind it. And we said, we're going to charge $10 for it, which we, we thought it's like very high, but we said, you know, good quality product, you know, we'll, we'll charge $10. So we said $10 and we put it out there and we, we thought like for a first month, um, we'll make like maybe uh, you know, 10 people would buy it, 20 people would buy it. So, you know, that'll be a good start. So we put it out there and um, during that Christmas to New Year's break, we went on a ski trip. We went on a ski trip and, um, you know, coming back from it, um, I think end of the month, uh, we were like, oh, let, let's check how many downloads do we have? Um, we're not even actively thinking about it. We log in and we saw more than thousand people wow. had bought it from, and this is, this is the kicker from 20 different countries. Wow. And that was Michael, that was the first aha moment where I was like, oh, wow, this is not just like the 20 people that I know who are studying for GMAT, but thousands of people all across the world needed a solution, which was mobile, which was interactive, which was affordable, and which is on the go. So that was the moment where we realized that, oh, wait, this is bigger than the project. This is bigger than what we had initially thought of. This is real. The demand is much bigger. The opportunity is much bigger. And this can turn into something much bigger than what we expected. Bigger than the practice business. So to exactly. Speak. Yeah. So, so what did, I mean, I, I know in businesses I've been involved in, when you start to feel that you're getting some kind of product market fit, like that people like what you're doing and you're on to something, what did that feel like? 
I mean, what, I mean, what I, you got your $10,000 back if I'm doing my math right, right? But like, what did it feel like? I mean, it, it felt amazing in the sense that we were really just purely excited about the opportunity. And by the way, actually, and you, you'll know as we kind of, you know, as I tell the story, even then, we didn't really fully understand how big it is. Right? But we said, hey, if it's GMAT, that, that means it's like, you know, ACT and SAT and LSAT and so on and so forth. Right? And we actually did not even by that time, I did not even know the word product market fit. I had not been to NVC, I had not read about venture capital, I had not read... So I just felt like, hey, this is this is a golden opportunity. We need to scale ASAP. And we had, I had nine months before I started business school. So I started September and this is like end of December. Right? So I said, I have nine months. We need to do whatever we can in these nine months because maybe I'm going to get go to business school and be so busy, I won't be able to spend time on this. So we really kind of, we, we took all the money that we got and we reinvested and we started to kind of build the platform. And um, by the time I started business school, we already had more than like 40 different apps. We had a small team, no employees, but just kind of contractors. And um, we were being regularly featured on the Apple app store as like, you know, apps to buy or like the education app store and the best-selling apps and, and so on. Got it. And you had apps for other things besides GMAT then at that point, or was it just? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it, we, had, we had kind of, you know, gotten into other standardized exams, um, you know, just college math and a bunch of other subject areas. Got it. And so when this was all happening back in December, had you applied to business school already or were you accepted or did you know where you're going to go? Like, where were you on that front? Yeah. So by December, I knew that I was already accepted at, um, at Chicago booth and um, was really, really excited about it. So I, I remember that it's like by March, when this was looking to be a business more than a project, I was already kind of looking at, you know, NVC and the, the classes and so on. So it, it was a really, really exciting time. I still, even that point, I considered this as like, oh, this is going to be like such an amazing thing to kind of mold my business school experience around. But I was, by that time, I was committed to uh, to join Chicago Booth. Got it. And, you, and how'd you pick Booth versus the other, other places you could apply and think about? So I had specifically applied to only the programs that were very much focused on entrepreneurship as a discipline. So that was kind of one of the criterias. Um, I was actually, I mean, this is like very, very, like early stages of the Polsky Center and the NVC as, as a program and so on. But that really kind of stood out to me. The second thing was that um, I actually had met a bunch of alumni from Chicago Booth and other business schools as well. And it's difficult to, to describe, but I, I felt much better connected to Booth alums than others. So I think those two criteria kind of really stood out for me. Got it. They were your people. You yeah, just sort of, yeah. sort of fit with them. So you you were set up to go to, to to Booth. You've got your sort of nine months to go. And your co-founder, he's still getting his PhD or did he give that up or what's going on? So he still had, um, he, he was still kind of working on his PhD. So he graduated in 2010. So, you know, when I was starting at business school, um, you know, we, we already had, customers and revenue and 
contractors and a brand name in this kind of you know niche market. Got it. So I, how, scale and scope. I mean, how did you have employees? How much revenue did you have? How many customers did you have? What was it like when you, when you came on? Yeah, so I would say I remember the revenue numbers when we were in NVC, which is in 2010, and we were already at roughly $300,000 annual revenue. Wow. Yeah, we had found a team in India who was actually helping us build the product. So we had maybe like three, four developers working, all contractors. We didn't have any employees. And then Ujwal and I were working on this like part-time um, alongside our full-time student commitments. Got it. So you were still a Capital One at this point, or at least until you got to school. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So this is like, yeah. So I was working uh, at Capital One until, I don't know, like July of um, 2009. September, I started at business school. And it, when you started at business school, had you already figured that this was going to be what you did when you graduated? Or were you going to go, you know, one of the tracks? You know, what was your plan at that point? Yeah, so I think this is becoming a theme. I knew that this business has had potential, but truly it wasn't until we won NVC that I looked at it as a true kind of career option. I was extremely proud of what we had built. We had, you know, 30, 40 different apps. We had tens of thousands of learners on our platform. We had more than 300,000 in revenue. So it wasn't like just a small project, but it wasn't really until, you know, I interacted with, as, as I went through the, the NVC program and we won that I looked at it and said, oh, the potential is kind of, again, much bigger. And we need to be fully committed to this, not as a side project, but a full-time commitment. Got it. And that's when you made the, the commitment. So I want to spend a few minutes on the NVC. And I guess before it, it seems, you know, th- th- there does seem to be a little bit of a theme that you're always sort of, you got a lot going on in your life and you're always sort of on the edge of something, right? So you went from being a student and teaching in a new country to working for a pretty, uh, you know, a, a pretty demanding job in strategy at one of the top companies. And then you're building this business on the side. And then you decide, you know what, I'm going to go full-time to school, and which is you know, not usually a casual thing or a, a part-time role. And so while I'm going to start at this business school where I ne- you know, haven't been to before, I'm going to go full-time, and I'm still running this business at the same time, right? So you, you, you've always got these multiple things going on. What made, did you, did you want, did you know you were going to enter the NVC? It sounded like maybe you did before you even got to school. Or- yeah, yeah, I think... Uh- Definitely. I mean, I I knew of the NVC program. I knew of the Polsky Center. Those were kind of key decision criteria before I applied. They played a role in why I selected Chicago Booth. So, you know, early on, I was convinced. So, you know, we entered the competition the first year of business school. And, you know, we were fortunate enough to win it. So tell me about that experience, because I assume it wasn't we just entered and we won. Now we're going to do this full time. I suspect there were some things in the middle, maybe. Tell, tell me about the NVC experience. So I, I would, first of all, totally characterize NVC experience as a, a game-changing experience for me. And I'll, I'll tell you why for kind of few reasons. First is I was convinced that, oh, I should kind of, you know, go through this initially so that we can win the competition and get the prize money. 
by this time i already had customers we had business we had product i underestimated the value that i'm going to get out of it purely from thinking about the business and the long term vision differently so 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 unpack that for me a little bit what was different how did you think about it before how did you think about it after what what was there yeah so um, I, i'll give you an example i mean I, i i submitted multiple ideas for the nvc totally different businesses totally different businesses okay even though you got one that you're running that's doing a couple hundred 300,000 a year and you're a full-time student you created some other business ideas yeah and i think <laughs> yeah um and he, here is why so i um this idea was already formed you know i mean lot of lot more work to do but i knew exactly what to write i was actually very very interested and fascinated for the opportunity to work with other students on other ideas as well right so that was the draw so the more i got involved in the entrepreneurship you know club and kind of heard about more ideas i felt that oh our plan is kind of already in the motion for the company that i had and by the way we were called watermelon express at that time so michael just the name will tell you how serious we were about this as a business right by the way i have to i have to ask how were you watermelon express and when did you go from watermelon express to benchmark so going all the way back to like that december 2008 period where we had we created the app right so we knew that we wanted to call the app gmat express because it's like gmat prep and it's express as in like you know it's on the go it's bite bite size learning so we knew the name of the product and then when we were submitting the application they were like what's the name of the company and we're like oh yeah we have to like figure that out as well and then we spent like hours and hours trying to kind of come up with the name which where we can get the domain name and it doesn't mean anything weird in you know i don't know spanish or something and we we were spending too much time and we had the product and we just couldn't upload it because we didn't have the company name or we hadn't kind of fully incorporated it so this is such a weird story but that's the reality so ujwal and i were drinking watermelon martinis one day and as a joke i came up with like hey what about watermelon express and he's like sure let's check if we have if we can get the domain name we could and right then we just you know said that's the name of the company and and move on wow it was after yeah. the first or second martini before you got to the I, I forget i mean given how <laughs> weird the name we picked it might have been more than that um, <laughs> but the, the thing is then the movie pineapple express came up right and then our name sounded like i mean for an education company that just sounded like not appropriate so e- eventually when we closed our our second round of funding that's when we actually changed the name got it and you're and i'm assuming that that was the name of the company but your app was not called watermelon express now so we kind of kept this express theme so it was gmat express and then we had a college math express and then sat express and and so on got it okay so you applied to the nvc with multiple companies and watermelon express yeah and did you did you grab some other team members from booth to join you and your partner on the watermelon express or did you keep it separate or sort of what what happened there yeah yeah definitely so we grabbed like few team members we had um so i i knew one of my seniors he was a friend of mine his name is saurabh sharma he was one year senior to to me at at business school i had knew him before um from um 
New York. So he was part of the team. So it is me, Ujwal, Saurabh, and then a couple of other folks uh, who are like senior advisors, not related to Booth. Um, so that was the team that, that we entered with. Okay. And so I assume you got accepted. Did the other companies get accepted? No, I, I think I think not to the final. Okay. So, so, so you got in, you got started, right? What was the experience like versus maybe even, you know, talk a little bit about what you expected versus what it ended up being, but what were some of the key things that happened during the NVC? Yeah. So I think it was a very, it was a, it was a phenomenal experience. I actually, for some reason, and, and this is, you know, I thought that given we have customers and we have revenue and we have a brand and so on, it's going to be a breeze. And it was so, in hindsight, it was so valuable that both the NVC judges and mentors really pushed us. And I, I used to look at other teams and, you know, the judges were challenging their core marketing plan because they didn't have customers. And I was like, oh, sure, we have customers. So they're, they're going to kind of be easy on us. And they weren't. I mean, they really pushed us to think big and think strategic on dimensions that I had not really even thought of. So give me an example. So, and this one specific example, I, I would never forget. So one of our mentors was, um, or the people who were involved was Professor Waverly Deutsch. Yes. And um, in one of the mentoring or coaching sessions, she really pushed us to think about our B2B strategy. So Michael, by, at this time, we were a direct-to-consumer company, which later on we pivoted to become a B2B company. And that's, that's an important kind of part of the story. At that time, we were not even thinking about B2B. And she pushed us and pushed us and multiple times to a point where I was internally, I was like, I just don't understand it. We have such a good like direct-to-consumer business. I don't know why we should consider B2B. It took us four years to realize the value of that. So that's an example where, you know, we were thinking, we were still in this, oh, this is a, this is a really good, exciting business. And we were thinking maybe like a year or two ahead of us, not five to 10 years. And that's what NVC really pushed us to think. Got it. Does she give you a hard time now? I could have saved you four years and a lot of headaches. No, no, no. But I think, I think, you know, the, the, as soon as we realized this, and as soon as we made the pivot, she was the, she was one of the first ones to know. Got it. Oh, that's great. And any any other things that sort of stand out in memory in terms of judges or mentors or folks that really you know helped make that NVC experience for you? Yeah. the The other thing is, I remember. I mean, honestly, by this until that point, we weren't really even thinking about fundraising. You know, NVC was the first time when I understood that there are multiple ways to build and scale the business and venture funding is like how it helps and how it all kind of comes together. And I ended up having multiple conversations with professor Kaplan on this. And this is like, even before we won. And I think that truly, you know, informed how we should think about our series A round of funding. And I think it's in those conversations that I started to, look at this as a viable business and not just like, you know, hey, we'll, we'll win NVC and we'll kind of go back to my next class. But hey, we have an opportunity to kind of really raise capital, hire employees, you know, scale the product and really make a big impact. So, so it's, it also sounds like a bunch of the learning and the value of the NVC 
may have happened during the presentations, but it sounded like it really happened around them and what happened outside of the sort of three hours of, of class per se, you know, where you present, that there was a lot of the, the, the meetings and interactions that you had throughout were what drove things. Is that, is that fair? I, I think that's, that's very fair. Um, and, and I think um, there were so many aspects of our business that we didn't really even, like marketing strategy is a perfect example of it, right? We were, our primary marketing channel was Apple App Store. And we, we got really good at it. But it was the NVC judges who really pushed us to explore other marketing channels where we had to spend on some SEM and figure out like what happens outside of the, the Apple network, which eventually became critically important as we try to scale the business. So it was like a lot of those things where just because we had customers, they didn't really kind of, you know, they, they still pushed us in that direction. And this is like in the classroom. And then outside of the classroom, there were these conversations happening with Professor Deutsch and Professor uh, Kaplan that were beyond NVC. Got it. And they kept pushing you. Yep. Again at the edge. Again at the edge. <laughs> so when you're, when you're going through this, you're, you're going through the NVC, I assume it's a little bit of a whirlwind, right? A lot going on. Now we're a bunch of years later. We got a new class of NVC folks, right? It's 25th anniversary. We've got 30 some companies that are just starting, they're going in. What advice do you have for them? What would you tell them to do to get the most out of this? Yeah. So I would say number one is if you can start early and by the time you're in NVC, if you have a truly viable and thought out business or thought out product or a vision that helps dramatically. The NVC would mold it and change it for sure. It did it for us. It does it for everyone. But coming up with the plan just for NVC, just I think that, that would limit how NVC would truly change the potential. In our case, we already had kind of customers and revenue and that made NVC that much more impactful. So number one is, just kind of come prepared much, much earlier than, you know, waiting for the class to begin. Got it. Okay. And it also sounds like if one of those other three businesses that you had worked on had made it, it probably wouldn't have been as good an experience because it wasn't as far along for you. Yes. Yes. I, I would think so. Yeah. Number two is, I think I looked at NVC, not just for the NVC, but eventually looking at this as how would this help me actually run the business and grow the business beyond NVC. So my conversations with a lot of like judges and coaches and professors were not just about winning the NVC, but actually about what, what's the right thing to do to scale the business. And I think that approach dramatically helped me in later years. Got it. So you weren't, you weren't playing a game to win. You were building a business. And it just so happened that as you built your business, you won. Yes. And yes. so everything about what you were doing in the program was really for the long term of the business versus trying to, for lack of a better word, manipulate around to win the prize. Yes, 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 yes. Interesting. And so roll forward, you guys win. Congratulations. Big Thank deal, you. right? At this point, you said you decided you're going to do this full-time or after yeah. you win? By this time, I think uh, NVC helped me again realize the big potential. So, you know, the first aha moment was December 20, 2008 when we had all those downloads. The second aha moment was the validation from NVC. 
and that was the moment where i realized that oh this is much bigger this is bigger than a project this is bigger than a class this is a real business and we got to do it got it and did did your co-founder jewel did he was he ready to go in full time too absolutely and i think that the timing was interesting so he had by that time graduated and he had offers waiting from him waiting for him from i think intel and kind of couple of other companies i still had my second year left so actually first of all we were convinced that we got to do it there were no questions around it by this point 100% convinced this is what we're going to do for a brief moment i was like maybe i should drop out and just do this full time then i realized that um, most probably my mom would disown me if i did that. um <laughs> your mom so the teacher said, right yeah yeah and um yeah, so decided have, against you wouldn't have enough to do just doing one thing yeah there you go it's like it's all it's all uh, living on the edge uh, but I, i i still i think second year was actually very difficult for me because i truly wanted the mba experience but by that time we actually had raised capital and had real employees i mean looking back at it i won't change it but it it actually kind of you know it it was a tough year for me i would say sure. did you adjust some of the classes you were taking to get more targeted towards what you needed in the near term for the business or 100% i i remember i mean i was i was anyway doing that in the first year but i wasn't really that well informed by the time i was in second year i knew exactly what what i needed i remember taking this one class um um that professor ira wise had um, i don't know if he still has it i think it was called business stacks or business stack strategy yep he it still was, does there you go it was so applicable to me i mean we talked about one specific example we talked about incentive stock incentive plans and i was hiring my first few employees it was literally like either i could hire a lawyer who would just do it for me or i could truly understand the mechanics of it and and do it myself and that was wonderful got it so really so you so you were able to take get some timely classes that really fed into yeah what you were doing excellent so walk me through sort of what happens next right you got some money from nvc i don't i suspect it's probably not enough money to build the whole business going forward you guys are graduating or you graduated your partner already graduated what happened in sort of what was the next turning point in the business yeah so we were able to we we got really good um you know response coming out of nvc around fundraising so we were kind of having conversations with uh you know various chicago based firms and by the way was it just the two of you or did you have some employees at this point just two of us and it was clear that we want to kind of scale it and we want to build a team and we needed to raise and we were having multiple conversations and um i remember one afternoon i think i was so i was i was sitting in my apartment and um i was doing like maybe like homework for a class and i get a phone call and you know it's a 312 number and i pick up the phone and i didn't really pay attention to the to the you know how the name of the person who was calling because i was distracted and um the second sentence that i hear is like so um i would like to kind of talk to you about potentially um, investing in your company and i was like oh hold on i'm, I'm sorry who who is this again and the voice on the other side says oh my name is um eric lefkowski um i've started a few businesses and i run this i'm like oh my god i i i know you eric i mean this is amazing to get a call from you i would love to meet you so you know when can we do this and she is like oh let's why don't you just come in tomorrow mhm wow 
so i'm 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 going crazy i mean eric just called me and um, you know this is this is exciting they had just announced their light bank uh, you know initiative and um, at that time my co-founder ujwal was um, in attending a conference in new york um, i think it was one of those you know startup pitch competitions for and we uh, more um, in front of venture capitalists and stuff so i said you know what let me just go and talk to eric the next day you know it's going to be one of the 15 conversations that we need to have to close around so let me just take the first one got it. and had you been looking at closing around elsewhere yet or you was that or had you had conversations elsewhere to sort of map the conversation you were going to have against or what was the we were we were having several conversations i would say like maybe two three of them were um, you know in late stages so we were talking to kind of a vc firm in in boston we were talking to a group in chicago we were talking to a group in in the valley so we had interest but we didn't have any term sheets or anything got it but you had a model of what you were going to expect in the process yes yes so we we i knew the pitch i knew the ask we hadn't really fully formulated like the terms and the structure and all of that stuff we just we knew we had academic knowledge of it but we didn't have a term sheet so we didn't even really discuss it internally got it okay so i show up to eric's office and um just eric and me and eric goes like so tell me what you do and you know i was just fresh out of nvc i knew exactly what to say and pitch so i kind of you know do my thing other was your was your uh, ujul with you no no he was, so he was in new york attending that conference and again i was like listen it's going to be first of many conversations so you don't need to you know be here and you know you can join in the second conversation so i go and pitch so eric listens to me for like 20 minutes and he goes like okay pause and then he invites his the rest of the team of light bank and they were like i think three or four of his associates and then he goes like oh, tell them what you just told me so i the next 20 minutes i do the same and then they ask me a few questions and then he asks them to leave and then we are like 40 minutes in the conversation and then he goes to his whiteboard and he puts the term sheet he writes the term sheet on the whiteboard and um, he goes like i want to invest this much at this valuation would you take it and i was like holy shit i i mean first i was not at all expecting this i had no answer i had I did not know how to kind of respond to it. I don't remember what I said, but I'm sure I blabbered something. But I, I said, "Listen, I, I need to kind of, you know, I need to talk to my co-founder. I need to think about it. So, can you give me like a day or two?" And he's like, "Sure." So I, I noted down the term sheet on my on my notepad, and I called Ujwal, and he would not believe what happened. I mean, he thought I'm just like joking with him. but yeah then we spoke and then we kind of came back uh, we negotiated um, the term sheet well and um, i think within like a within a week we agreed to it and then within a month we closed it and this is like i think june or july of 2010 so i would say like you know within 2 to 3 months of um, winning nvc we had closed our first round of funding got it. and so you were still a student when you closed the round yep i was still student you still had one more year to go yes Did Eric ever suggest that he wanted you to do it full time versus, uh, you know, stop doing this MBA thing and just go full time versus he was they were supportive of it? 
No, no. So he was he 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 wanted to know what my decision was, but he didn't kind of push me in either direction. He just wanted to kind of make sure that between Ujjwal and I, we were committed to doing this, and we were. I mean, there was you know zero doubt in our mind. And by that time, Ujjwal had graduated, so the whole idea was he would be full time, I would be part time, and then I would graduate. You know, within nine months, and then I would be full time going forward. Got it. So now you got a bunch of money. How much? Can I ask how much money did you guys raise? Yeah. So that was uh, we raised a million dollars at that time, and then later on we added another one point two. So the first round became a two point two million dollar round. Got it. And that was considered an A or a seed. We called it a Series A. Okay. Yeah. And did you get a bunch of board members that came with that, or how did did it change anything in terms of the structure or the the ability you guys had to run and build the company you wanted? So both Eric um, Lefkowski and Brad Keevel joined the board, and it was Ujjwal and myself. So we did have kind of you know we we created a board. We didn't have a board by that time, but Eric and Brad kind of gave us um, you know full freedom to to do it the way we wanted to do it. They wanted us to just do it really fast and really big, but they had invested in kind of what how we wanted to kind of grow the business. So I think that was that was great help. And they wanted you to go on the path that you were on at the moment that was working. Yes, yes. Got so it. they wanted us to remain in the direct to consumer business. They wanted they wanted us to kind of truly invest in product because before that we didn't you know we had like some contractors kind of in building out product. They wanted us to build a team, invest in product, and then really scale. And that's something that they were really good at. So we were excited that, you know, once we actually have the product, you know, built up for scale, their expertise would allow us to scale the go-to-market very quickly. Got it. And so use some of the money to build a team? Yes. So that's when we started to kind of, you know, hire um, we started, we hired our first few employees in the second half of 2010. So that was actually interesting. I mean, by the time I graduated in 2011, we had roughly like, I think, nine, 10 employees. Got it. And what, how'd you prioritize who to hire what? You know, who to hire first, right? What were the areas that you, you hired? Yeah. So we, um, both Ujwal and I knew that the power of all this is in the product and this is this is the early stages of mobile learning this was the early stages of i mean i would say like very early stages of digital learning to begin with and we were convinced that we were only beginning to scratch the surface when it comes to the power of digital learning so we our first kind of you know investment was on the product side so the the first i would say the first four or five hires were strictly product and engineering now what about you know i'm assuming you've got competitors in the market right are you are you feeling pressure that you've got to scale faster or you've got some pretty big companies with some pretty big franchises right kaplan and some of these other folks that clearly are got to be moving into this market that's evolving like how is that playing out yeah so our, our business model, Michael, was slightly different. Our business model was that we actually never created content right? outside of that first app that I created in 2008. The core thesis of the company was this one key insight, which was that the modern learner wants to learn differently. Modern learner is distracted. They get too many 
you know, text messages, too many Slack messages. They are impatient. They can't kind of, you know, sit in a classroom for hours and hours or watch a, a video for an hour. They are on the go all the time. So how do we solve for this modern learner? And we looked at the, the, the industry and we said that, hey, there is a lot of educational content out there already. We don't need more GMAT content. We don't need more math content. What we need is how do we actually move from this paradigm of content delivery to delivering a learning experience. And with that mindset, we said we don't need to create more content. In fact, we are going to go to these big educational publishers, license their content and deliver these learning experiences around their content to consumers. So that was the model. So we actually, we licensed content from McGraw-Hill, from Kaplan, from Princeton Review, um, and all of these big names. Got it. So it was more a different way to learn and a different take on the content that existed as opposed to you had unique content or unique information. Yes, yes. Well, you still had competitors, I assume, right? I mean, maybe you're competing, you know, in some ways there's a little co-optition, right? Because the guys that you're licensing the content to are still selling the content in a different format. Exactly. So we we definitely had competition. We had direct competition from others who are trying to do exactly what we are trying to do. And in this relationship with our suppliers, you know, the 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 publishers, right? It's it was almost like they wanted us to be successful, but maybe like not very successful. So they looked at us as an opportunity to tip their toe in the digital learning or mobile learning space. All of them said, hey, rather than trying to kind of doing it ourselves, let's see if, you know, Watermelon Express or Bench Prep can help us figure it out. And then at some point, maybe we'll kind of do it ourselves. Got it. So, so as the business is sort of growing, you've got some money, you've got a different approach. You, the competitors seem a little bit at bay, at least as you're describing them, they're sort of watching you grow. What were some of the challenges you faced, either expected or unexpected? in that period. Yeah. So um, we ran into, I would say, big challenges in the 2012 to 2014 time period. This is the time when we were trying to scale. And what we learned at that time was that, you know, our product was great. Everyone loved the learning experience. But the unit economics in the direct-to-consumer business in the test prep world were just extremely difficult to manage given a, you know, a digital-only product. So here we are with a really good product, you know, with just, you know, raised Series A funding. We are pumping in money in, the, in online marketing and we are beginning to see a lot of traction, but the economics were still not working out. In 2014, um, actually, I'm sorry, in 2012, we ended up raising more capital. So we raised a $6 million round from NEA and Revolution. And the expectation there was that maybe if we spend more, the economies of scale are going to help us figure out a better unit economics. So a little bit more of if, if your brand is better known, awareness is there, your conversion metrics will all go up and therefore your cost to acquire is going to go down. 
and you've got to sort of hit that critical number. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And is that how it worked? Absolutely not. Huh, okay. I mean, it, it we we were able to bring down our cost of acquisition, definitely, right? And the brand helped the the um, the scale helped the customer referrals helped and so on. However, we realized that we are actually kind of solving the wrong problem. The challenge was not the CAC piece of it. The challenge was the LTV. The model that we were in, in the direct-to-consumer test prep space, it was we found it very difficult to increase the LTV of a user. You take a test, you prepare for a test, and you're done. And then you kind of maybe come back in like a few years. So unless your LTV is like thousands and thousands of dollars that Kaplan or others kind of classroom programs would have, it was very difficult for us to compete in that market with a hundred dollar LTV. Got it. And so in, in some ways, sort of learning the lesson of why back when you started the business, it was either a $20 book you could buy at a bookstore probably back then because the distribution model worked or it was a $2,000 program at Kaplan. Yeah. Yeah. For, for the exact reasons you guys are coming across now, right? Exactly. So, so th- that was that was a the third aha moment, um, not not a not a happy one, when we realized that I think scaling a direct to consumer test prep business with that kind of economics is just not going to be possible. Okay. So you raised your 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 next round. You got about sounds like you got about eight million dollars at least raised. I don't know what you've got left. You've got a pretty fancy, well-known board, it sounds like. You've told them our story. You've told them your direction. Guns blazing, you're scaling. And you have this aha moment you're describing, which is the dog doesn't hunt as we scale. O-S, right? Yes. So what do you do? So what we did was too little, too late, first of all. I think this is the time when um, I would say, see, entrepreneurs have to be, I feel, irrational a little mm-hmm. bit. During this time, I felt we were too irrational. Too irrational? Too irrational. We believed in the product so much that we just did not look at data. And we just kept pushing and kept spending and kept spending. And we got to a point where we had burned most of our cash. So we had maybe less than a million of cash left. So maybe less than 12 months of runway. And it got to a point where I think at some point it was clear to us that this business model is just not going to work. The direct to consumer model is not going to work. So great product. It's just your go to market isn't working. Yes. Okay. And at that time we actually got a acquisition offer. Okay. From a financial sponsor or from a, from a strategic buyer. Okay. And both Ujjal and I almost looked at this as like, this is, going, this is going to save us. And we just went all in on it. And the story for the strategic was, we already have access to these customers at a much lower cost. So when you put these together, we take this great technology and we can sell a lot more of it at a lower cost or they hadn't figured out the cost challenge you had. No, no, exactly. So I think they, so it was a public company, public education company. They had really good you know, really good and large customer base. And they were looking at this as a product extension, right? That they have already invested in customer acquisition or they had subsidized customer acquisition across multiple products and channels. And this is a great kind of upsell opportunity for them. 
And you guys had proved it worked. Yes, our product was solid. Our technology was solid. Um, so it was kind of a great fit. And this is 2014, um, first half. And, you know, all of us got excited that this is going to save us. And, you know, we went all in. We took our eyes off of execution and just kind of overcommitted to this acquisition conversation. And it was very real. I mean, we got term sheets and, you know, board discussed it. And it would have been an outcome where some investors would have made money. Both Ujul and I would have made enough money. So we would have made so much money that we at least I had not seen in my life that me and my maybe like two generations above me might not have seen. It wasn't retirement money, but just from where I was coming from, it was, it would have been life-changing. So, so a a very good outcome for you, maybe not hundred percent of what you wanted, but it was, it'd be a victory. Yes. I mean, I would say a good financial outcome to me. I think if you would have gone through that acquisition, I would not have called it a victory, but a good financial outcome. Yes. All right. So, so, so you, you, you guys resigned yourself to go out because it's, it sounds like there's a little bit of, and maybe there's a little hindsight in this, but it doesn't sound like you were that excited about the acquisition. It was just like, we don't really know what else to do. We're yes. running out of money. So let's just go this way. Yeah, that was, that was absolutely, that was absolutely the case. I mean, I was excited because it it would have been an acquisition where our product, which we truly cared about, would have been truly Im, you know implemented at scale. Um, it would have taken from like hundreds of thousands of users to millions of users. So we were really excited about that part of it. But it you know the goals that we had set for ourselves, it would have been you know a much smaller exit. And I think that was not exciting. I mean, it, it was based on where we were, where we had less than 12 months of cash left. And the other option is to potentially shut down the company. This is a really good outcome from, from that perspective. Yeah. So definitely much better than, than shutting it down. Yes. Um, did you guys look at, can we raise money and go in a different direction? Or was that really not an option because the, the acquisition was just too easy? Yeah, I mean, I don't think that we had, um, that would not have been an option. I think we had already raised $8 million. The traction was decent, but not something that someone would want to kind of double down on. Got it. And your, and your board, how did they react to the acquisition? Were they, were they supportive? Were they strongly supportive? Were they indifferent? So I think um, they were supportive to what... Ujjal and I really wanted to do. And, um, you know, we looked at this as kind of, you know, our, you know, get out of trouble card. Um, so we pushed for it and they, they supported it. Got it. So it, it sounds like given where you are today, it's something didn't work. Yeah. So the acquisition did not happen. It, it fell through literally at the last moment. We had um, all the legal paperwork kind of drawn out. We had the term sheet and they pulled back at the last moment. So big company changes strategy. You guys aren't part of the strategy. We're done. Yes. Or did they, or was it a, we want to renegotiate? I mean, there were kind of a couple, couple of rounds of renegotiation, uh, but at the end of the day, it was actually just, it was not about the price. They had just kind of changed the the strategy and we didn't fit in as well as we did like six months ago. Got it. So just an absolute punch to the gut. Yes. I mean, it was devastating, devastating. So what'd you do? 
so that was the moment of reckoning right so th- that was a moment where we had to i mean it was you know a decision between <laughs> i mean there was there was no good decision to be made i mean we, we looked at acquisition as like hey if we don't go through this then we are shutting down and and the acquisition fell and the only option was you know maybe we we had less than half a million of cash left in bank that would have been like maybe 3 to 4 months of runway we just didn't have any other option than you know shut it down got it and what was board doing at this point i mean were they just saying let's shut it down quietly i mean or were they just watching you guys or like how 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 active were they in this so board was really active and by that by this time we had like you know nea revolution um and light bank and i had really good counsel but everyone kind of felt everyone by this time everyone had kind of you know mentally committed to the acquisition so this was kind of a really big shift um and and a shock so i think they left it on ujwal and me to decide um and ujwal and i kind of got back together and you know we you know we said hey let's let's figure out what what we really want to do what we knew was that again we were really convinced about the product and its applicability we asked ourselves that you know hey have we done everything that we could to to take this forward and the answer was no we haven't right we were convinced that millions of learners wanted it if b2c doesn't work let's try b2b if if you have to change go to market strategy let's do that if you have to change our product a little bit let's do that but we were convinced about the market opportunity and we said we owe it to ourselves to give it one last push all right so so how do you do that right you've got 3 months of runway 4 months maybe bunch of employees a board who's sort of engaged but saying hey you guys can figure it out were they offering you a lifeline of here's a million dollars to bridge you or like what did you do yeah so i think um i i didn't it, it is it's like we didn't ask they didn't offer um because i don't think that just money would have solved it i think we had to look at the business very differently and this is where all of those the the data points that we ignored and the the the, the nudges that you know we got over the last like 5 years kind of came into play and we looked back at it and we said like listen you know everything points towards the fact that we should explore a b2b strategy here product is what we really good at it was the unit economics didn't that didn't work out we still have a product i remembered conversations with um big publishers where we went and tried to license their content and they would ask me hey are we not really sure about licensing our content we have never done that we would want to license your technology and i was like no 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 that's not what we do that's not our kind of business model all of those conversations really kind of came back to us and ujjal and i said listen like we we got to try it and we said i mean we had like roughly 23 employees at that time um, we couldn't carry the entire team because it was all like half of it was uh, sales and marketing so we said we got to preserve cash so one single day we let go of roughly 15 employees and we came back from like 23 to 7 wow what was that like that categorically was the hardest decision i made and one of the most difficult days of me being a founder of a company and were you guys aligned oh true and 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 you on that was the right thing to do 
yes, I think we were fully aligned that that was the only option that we had. We got really good counsel from the board. So we, we kind of, we did everything we can to kind of do it the best possible way. We had, you know, potential interviews lined up for the people that we were letting go. We had multiple conversations with them, but still it was, it was difficult. Right. I know you guys did it uh, above and beyond in that, you know, in the community here in Chicago, you reached out to so many of the other tech firms and help people get a safe landing. But I'm sure for, for you guys having to go in and talk to, I mean, I, I, I've been, been in your shoes, go in and talk to these, these employees that are, you know, part of your life and say, it's not yeah, working. Yeah. And I think, you know, when companies are small, and Michael, you have been there. So when com- you would know, when companies are small, I mean, I, I personally had interviewed each and every one of them. So I personally had selected each and every one of them. They were really smart, really, they are really smart, really, really committed. And I almost felt like, you know, we should have acted differently and changed the strategy much earlier and the outcome would have been different. So at that point, Ujul and I really took it hard and looked at it as, as our personal responsibility that we had to kind of go through this. and. Um, I mean, I, I felt we did everything that we could, but this decision actually weighed so heavily on us that it led to how we ran the company over the next like five years. In, in what way? It, 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 it almost, um, we, I think we overcompensated for this decision for a long time. And I'll give you a couple of specific examples. So we made the pivot. We, are, we got down to seven people. And we said, we got really focused, by the way. We said, hey, we have six months. We got to sign a customer. And I became the only sales rep. Um, you know, Ujwal was managing product. We had our, our CTO. So, you know, everyone else was focused on product. I was focused on you know, selling. I was able to sign a marquee customer in four months who paid us almost like half a million dollars upfront. Wow. Wow. And that just kind of completely changed the trajectory. And how did you, how did you do that? I mean, how did you get that sale? It sounds like you didn't know anything about, you know, you, you weren't the sales guy, as you said, you were the founder of the business. How did you do that? I think I was just um, so convinced about the value of the product um, and not just convinced, you know, we had data to prove it. So we, I went back to all of the conversations that we had where people asked me about the, the content, uh, the platform. And I said, no. And I reshaped the conversation. And I think um, I, I understood the market and the needs really well. And I was not really bothered by scaling or what, you know, what do I need to do to get the 10th customer? I was laser focused on that single customer. And I think that just allowed me to kind of truly think about the conversation from their perspective. And that kind of resonated really well. So uh, the product was great. We were able to sign the first customer. Within six more months, we were able to sign the second customer, which is almost like a a million dollar ARR customer. So by the time we kind of got to the first two, then we, you know, things were happening. We were beginning to grow. We became cash flow positive. So between 2015 and 2018, we saw really, really good growth. So, So it wasn't just a pivot. It was almost like a slingshot around the moon, right? You guys... You were going one way, you were going pretty well, and then you just rocketed back in a different direction because it wasn't like it took you two years to get that some revenue and get the business going. 
you, you, you were able to pretty quickly pivot into a couple of great customers with some real cash flow that could leverage this technology that existed. Yeah. And <laughs> now I look back at it and it's like, we didn't even, we didn't have two years to figure this out. I mean, we literally had six months. So we got really lucky breaks exactly when we needed it. Um, and I think we positioned ourselves well for it. I mean, we had to, we, we increased our, uh, our runway from like three months to like, you know, seven, eight months by going through that um, reorg. And that kind of gave us a little bit of time. The first customer that we signed gave us a lot more confidence. I would say like the, the commitment that I got from the five employees that we kept gave me a lot of confidence. So I felt it wasn't just Ujwal and me who are seeing the market opportunity and value of the product. But if these five employees are willing to commit to it, we have something that we should take to the market. Right. Was it was it a risk for that marquee customer to sign up with you? Or was it a no-brainer? Like you, the person who said yes, do they play in this role at all? You know, play a role in this at all? Or it was just a logical answer for them, no big deal. So I think from a product perspective, it was a very logical answer. From just the company viability perspective, it was a risk. Mm-hmm. But it it was one of those things where, you know, we made ourselves look bigger than who we were. I think it's just like, you know, I remember phone calls where we, when when we realized that they're going to have three people on their side, we made sure that we had four people from our side. They didn't know that four is like 80% of our company, um, <laughs> but that's that's what we did. I think we, we over-prepared, we we created more documentation that was required. We we had more people on the call. So it was just like, we we were so fully committed to making this happen that, um, and I think they, they didn't ask for financials or anything. And, you know, I, I feel lucky that they didn't. Net-net, I think it was a phenomenal arrangement for them as well. So it was a win-win and it worked out well. Got it. Awesome. So so the business is growing and you're, you're doing all of this self-funding, it sounds like, right? And I think you guys had if I've seen my numbers correct, sort of doubling revenue every year for four years without raising money. Yeah. Yeah. And um, yeah. So 2015 to 20, from 2015 to 2018, we went from like what uh, zero to roughly like eight, 9 million in ARR um, in those kind of three, four years. Wow. And um, that's when I realized that we were overcompensating for that pivot. It was clear to me that we should have, in hindsight, we should have raised maybe in like 2016 or 17, where we had enough product market fit. So you were a little gun shy. Yes. To raise money. And that, that impacted your ability to grow or you grew, even though you were doubling, you could have grown even bigger, even faster, or even more. Yes. So I think that there were, there were two, I would say mistakes that we make. Uh, during that time. So one is we were just gun shy because we really wanted to be sure that now we have product market fit. And second is we started to over index and over invest on the revenue and go to market side than the product side. Because in the first phase, we had phenomenal product and we couldn't make the go to market work. After pivot, we, we were like, hey, product is fine, but we got to make the go to market work. So all the incremental investments were going towards go-to-market, not product. And then by the time we were in 2018, we realized that, oh, we should have raised much earlier and invested in product much earlier. And that would have actually helped us 
scaled to the next level much earlier. Got so you had a bunch of tech debt in some ways that impacted your scaling. And in a lot of ways, I guess, it, if you think about it sort of as a pendulum, right? Are we spending on product or are we spending on go-to-market? You were so far on the product and then you swung so far over to the go-to-market that you let some of the other stuff go because you were just scared you'd run out of money. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. get the revenue. And not just, so tech debt, absolutely. The other thing was because the first few customers that we signed were these million dollar ARR customers, they came with a lot of um, needs. And million dollar ARR customers always come with a lot of needs. But we let our product roadmap be driven by these few customers, which was which might have been okay in the first couple of years. But then in later years, we should have you know broken away from that practice. But it took us some time. And I mean, I would almost say like it took us like when COVID hit last year and when we had to again change our our go-to-market a little bit, that's when we realized that, oh shit, we, we have to kind of go back to our roots and become a more product-focused company. Got it. And so was some of that, did you have one code base or did you have multiple code bases? We had we had single code base. Um, you know, we have a we have really strong CTO. So from a pure technology scalability perspective, we were very solid. Got it. So it was the ROI in, in some of the places you invested were really just for this partner versus something you could use across all the partners. Exactly. It was the product innovation where we could have done much, much better. And was was that innovation in end delivery or was it in a platform platform capabilities to be a B2B player across everybody? Whereas before you were a platform for an end user and those things are, there's a layer in the middle there that you got to figure out. Yeah, so it was a it was a latter. I think we have always been really good at focused on the learner experience. I mean, we have served like more than six million learners by now. So that has been our focus. Being a, a direct to consumer company kind of you know led us to this path where that became our DNA. And then we had to build all of these B two B tools. I think that's where kind of we should have taken a step back and said, okay, let's kind of build it for future rather than building it for one customer at a time. Right. And I assume your channel partners want all sorts of reporting and different functionality to integrate this and tie this into that. And how do you create a platform that allows you to do it versus what each one wants and answer? Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's almost, it's, it's a, it's an interesting lesson in how our early success kind of, you know, led us to a, I wouldn't say led us to a product strategy or a way of kind of building product, which kind of then became a problem three years later. Mm -hmm. But at least you're around to have the problem. So, so, so 2018, you guys raised, that's when you finally raised, right? The next round. Tell me about that. So that was another kind of pivotal moment where, you know, by this time we were doing really good. Um, you know, we, we grew from like, you know, zero to, you know, I think somewhere between eight to 10 million in ARR. Again, I mean, we, you know, we had been running this business for eight years now. So Ujjal and I kind of, you know, sat and said, hey, is this something that, you know, should we, is this a good time to exit? Or, you know, should we just kind of, you know, keep, keep doing this? And it took us no longer than 10 minutes to realize that we have to go all in. We looked at the opportunity and realized that we have seen nothing yet. It truly felt like we were in the second inning of a nine inning game. And you don't accept the score when you're in the second inning. I mean, you go all in. 
So we said, hey, listen, you know, this is good. We have found the product market fit. Now we know, know exactly how to scale. And we said we need to bring strategic investors in, people who kind of understand this, you know, specific B2B education market. So we went out and raised um, a, a big round and brought in a couple of more investors um, in 2018. Got it. And so how is the business or how was the business progressing until we hit COVID? We got a bunch of money. Was it as you guys thought? It was. I mean, I would say um, the, the first order of business for me when we raised the capital was to build out the team. Because until this point, it was you know myself, Ujwal, and um, our CTO, Nikolai Schwartz. And it was very clear to me that I mean, we need a strong team to scale this. We can't kind of go from 10 to 50 with, with just kind of three of us. So I almost felt like, you know, I look at all of 2019 and it was all about kind of building the team. And we kind of brought in um, a sales leader, marketing leader, CFO, and, and so on and so forth. And then by the time it was time for this team to really kind of get going and scale, we are hit with COVID. Now, COVID is an interesting kind of, you know, situation for us because it truly accelerated the trend that we were betting on, which is around digital learning. And this is, and this very much is our moment to shine. And we actually saw good growth last year. We almost kind of tripled the number of new customers that we signed last year as compared to the year before. We, um, we signed some marquee customers, but it, it, it almost feels like, you know, if we would have made all of those investments on the product front, you know, two years ago or raised capital, um, you know, a couple of years earlier, we would have been at a totally different scale than we are today. So you mentioned you'd hired a bunch of folks in 2019. What was that like? Did you, did you, did you get that scaling and those hires right? Or did you have to tweak it? I had to tweak it. I had to tweak it. This was the first time we were hiring senior folks. And I was, I tried to be like so particular and disciplined about hiring every single one of them. And I feel every single one of them is a rock star. But even then, we got it wrong on a couple of fronts. A couple of hires that we made, um, really strong leaders, not the right fit for the stage that we were at. One was you know, too senior and we were just not there yet. One had a very different kind of approach to scaling and we were not there yet. So I think all in all, I would say, um, you know, maybe five out of the seven hires that we made were on point and we had to make some tweaks in the last you know, year or so. Uh, well, five out of seven is actually, I think, pretty good. If you think about how the business has evolved, how have you had to change your role and your style to adapt? Yeah, it, it has been <laughs> dramatic. I mean, I, I, I almost look at it, Michael, and I feel like in 2017, I was the sales rep. In 2018, I was a manager. 2019, I was a recruiter. Last year, I was like almost like a chief storyteller focused on like crisis management. So like very, very different roles. Um, I think this year is the first year that I am doing the job for which I've been carrying the title for the last 10 years of the CEO. 
and um it took me a while but i finally realized that my job is to make decisions when i don't know what to do <laughs> yep and in a fast growing company like bench prep i feel reality changes every quarter and it's like at scale or at, given what we are trying to do everything breaks so i think finally i've accepted that my role is going to be around you know focusing on the the mission and vision of the company and continuing to repeat and tell the story around why we are why we are doing what we are doing and then almost like spending most of my time on making those decisions where we don't have a lot of data and we're where we don't know what to do right and i think you know i've always learned you know not making a decision is the same as making a decision and that has its own implications of the lack of clarity and how it drives through the organization and i suspect as a larger organization now please take this the right way you don't do that much it's everybody else that you've hired that's done everything and so it's sort of the first 50 you hire are going to hire the next 250 yes and making sure that those next 250 know the story and know the plan because they're the ones carrying the keys to the car driving absolutely and it's almost like they they need to be part of the story so it's not just what i think um i can set the mission and the vision but how do we actually get there all of us have to try to figure this out together they have to be bought in i have to kind of bring them along the journey and then kind of make sure that we stick to our values and principles so that they can make day to day decisions by themselves the the other thing that i've i've learned in my role is also kind of you know the balance between intuition and data and i think i've come to appreciate it kind of much more in the last like couple of years um and i think colin powell has this rule of thumb about making tough decisions and he calls it um i think it's like rule of 40 70 where he says that um, you know if you are making a decision without having at least 40% of the information then you're just you know shooting in the dark but if you wait until you have 70% of the information then you're just too late you have missed the opportunity so that's the sweet spot like 40 to 70 and um as a chicago booth alum and as a you know as a graduate student uh, from in like applied mathematics i'm a data hog i need data to make decisions and all this while i felt like you know i just kept waiting for more and more data to make decisions but in the last couple of years is when i have truly appreciated the intuition a founder develops after kind of going through all these ups and downs and being in the industry for a while and and striking a balance between where i should kind of just listen to my instincts and guts and where i should keep asking for more data right it's interesting i've, I've always seen that to me entrepreneurs versus the corporate america folks the bigger companies they're more like an army right it's ready aim fire and there's a whole process and the entrepreneurs are ready fire aim yeah. <laughs> and you've made your decision and now you've got to steer and make your next decision because you don't have the time as your business is going so quickly to to get the aim just right yep so one other area i would just love to probe because you you have a co-founder who was a good friend before you started 
you guys have been together 20 plus years. You've been in the business now 12 years, something like that, roughly yep. together. A, a series of questions around that, right? How did you guys make it work? How do you define who does what? Have you ever had any issues and how did they play out? And what advice do you have for someone else who's thinking about getting a partner? Yeah, so I think first, a big disclaimer, I got really, really lucky with my co-founder, really lucky. I think we have a very high level of trust and mutual respect. And that has, that solid foundation has helped us kind of go through these ups and downs. Um, and it's been crazy 12 years. I mean, we came to like, you know, you know, close to shutting down the company. Should we raise, not raise again? Hiring, I mean, thousands of decisions. Um, but we have been fully aligned. So I think I just, in general, I feel lucky about, about kind of having Ujwal as my co-founder. Couple of things that we did, I would say we did good early on was to truly set boundaries between what is gonna be kind of my area of focus and what's gonna be his area of focus. So I continue to focus on the revenue side of things and he continues to focus on the product side of things. So, so in a sense, he's got 51% of the product role and you've got 51% of the revenue role? Exactly. So I think it's like we, and by the way, if, if, you know, we openly discuss and argue about everything in, in, in a very constructive way with the understanding that, you know, on product front, he has the, the, the last call and veto and on the revenue side, I have the last call and veto. And that has kind of worked out really well. So I think, you know, that's kind of my recommendation when it comes to like, picking a co-founder or kind of making it work. I think the just being friends, I feel is definitely not enough. I think functionally having complementary skills and focus areas helps, but having mutual respect and very clear distinction as to what the area of focus is, is critically important. So where's the future of the business? What do you see? What do you see as next? Like, What's the vision? So I think this is where I think I go back to the opportunity. I mean, when I look at the digital learning space, I truly believe that we have seen nothing yet. Today, only 3% of the total education and training spend is digital. I mean, this is going to be dramatically different in the next 10 years. I mean, we're going to look at this 10 years from now and say like, what were we doing? I think the industry is going through a massive digital transformation. And this is all led by the fourth industrial revolution. I mean, finally, we are living in a world or we have acknowledged that we are living in a world where technology is changing everything. And, you know, everyone is a learner and every organization is a learning organization. And education and training is going to have a big societal impact. Education, training, upskilling and reskilling are going to drive tremendous value over the next 10 years. So from a macro perspective, Michael, I look at this and say, we are just starting. I mean, sure, we have been doing this for 12 years, but we are only beginning to scratch the surface. And I think that is what is driving a lot of excitement for Ujul and I. There are tens of thousands of organizations who truly have to transform their digital learning offering. More than 250 billion of training spend is going to go digital over the next 10 years. And we are truly well positioned to capture that. 
so we have set up um we have set our vision to truly elevate everyone's potential as we as a society we go through this this massive transformation and our mission to say that we're going to help every single organization out there become truly great learning organization so we have a we have a long way to go excellent but i'd bet on you guys it's awesome i mean just phenomenal story you know and and to sort of hear the roller coaster of what it's like to be an entrepreneur the highs and the lows and how it goes up and down and i don't i don't know if that's how you felt but how do you manage those highs and lows right i mean at one point you guys were um you know you're going skiing didn't think you had a business all of a sudden you got 1000 people paid money you raise some money then you're almost out of business then you're back up right how do you how do you how do you manage that yeah i um i've thought about it a lot like like what keeps me going you know so i watch this podcast or like i listen to this podcast um i'm going to quote someone else on this one i think it was like all things considered on npr where alec baldwin is interviewing jerry seinfeld and they're talking about a bunch of things um and in between that alec goes like jerry who do you think makes it in um comedy so jerry goes like um actually let, let's ask a different question who makes it in showbiz i'll tell you who makes it in showbiz and then he says people who want to make it in showbiz do they have the most talent we'll find out but people who are really committed and who really want it make it i think that's how i felt about my journey at every stage Ujjwal and I didn't look at this as an option. We're like, this is what we want to do. Do we have all the resources? We'll figure out. Do we have all the funding? Definitely no, but we'll figure out. Do we have all the talent? Definitely not, but we'll hire for it. But this is what we really want to do. And I think that desire, I feel, has fueled. our ability to kind of live through all of this i mean this has been an emotional roller coaster i mean up and down and up and down i mean even if i look at like last year michael i mean we grew our revenue while maybe like half of the companies out there really struggled and it's it still was emotional roller coaster like managing a team of 130 people remotely you know trying to drive impact for millions of learners every day and day out is is emotionally draining but we never looked at it as a option not to do it got it so if you sort of come full circle from from growing up in india and sort of born to be an entrepreneur nurtured to be an entrepreneur you know are you do you did you become one or were you always one to have this passion and energy that you're talking about i think i i've been nurtured to become one i think i always had the instincts to be to get into uncomfortable positions you know to to be okay with putting myself over the edge living on the edge and you know being uncomfortable i mean i have i have moved around um a lot um i have switched roles even while i was at capital one so i always i always felt that i wanted to learn new things i wanted to kind of you know push the envelope a little bit i got couple of lucky breaks that all this led to me starting a company 
but looking back at it i i i would not change a thing i think i am i feel very fortunate to be an entrepreneur i feel very fortunate to do something like this in the field of education but i think to answer your question i think i i feel i've been nurtured to become an entrepreneur well your parents must be really proud back in india to sort of see what you've what you've built and and where you've come and I'm, and and you should be really proud it's just such a great great story of resilience of smarts of really building something great and it's 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 really exciting to do it and thanks for sharing it really cool thanks michael absolutely i mean i think it has been all the people around me that um, got me to this spot so lucky to be in that this situation is there is there any last advice that we didn't cover that you want to you know you'd want to pass on to anybody listening to this sometimes i look go back and look at um, some of the or, or revisit some of the interviews that i gave or podcasts that i did like you know years ago and i saw this theme early on when i was a young entrepreneur um, where i used to say next 6 months are critically important for bench prep and then everything is fine and then i saw like i keep saying this like every 6 months <laughs> and i've realized that it's a long game it's a long game and every 6 months the challenges are different and that's what makes it interesting but as far as you keep your your eyes on the long game and the true why behind what you're doing it all becomes meaningful so in a sense it's a marathon not a sprint absolutely All right, that is it for this episode. If you could do me a huge favor really quick, please go to your favorite podcasting app, often Apple Podcasts, and rate and review our show. This gets the show recommended to more folks and it also helps us get bigger and better guests for you to listen to. Take care. Thank you.